Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all. This is Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. A big thank you to all of you who uh, signed up to attend True North Nation on Saturday in Calgary. It was our first event ever of this kind. We've got uh, Danielle Smith there. We've got uh, Stephanie Cusey. We've got, well, you've got me, but I don't, I'm like lower tier billing. Candace Malcolm will be there. It'll be great fun. And we sold out. So if you missed it, you will have to come to our next one, which we hope to do again. I said we would repeat it if we were successful. And I feel like uh, because we sold out, we probably can uh, say it was a success. But anyway, that will be lots of fun. That's coming up on the weekend. And I'm Looking forward to seeing those of you who are coming. Uh, Got to start the show off, though, on a bit of a more, I don't want to say angry note. I actually try not to get mad. I try not to be an angry person because I find it's not always the most constructive emotional state to be in. But sometimes news and circumstances push us to the point where we have no other option. Now, this is a moment that I knew was coming, and it's a moment I have warned is coming for some time now, but it is semi-official in that the Liberal government, the Justice Minister specifically, has promised the Liberals' much-vaunted bill on online harms will be coming soon. Now, online harms is a bit of a euphemism. It's a bit of a catch-all as well. There are five categories of online harms as the Liberals conceptualize them. And I want to list them so you can decide if there is something in this list or maybe a couple of things that are not exactly like the other. One is terrorism, terror content. One is incitement to violence. One is hate speech, one is child sexual exploitation, and the other is non-consensual sharing of intimate images, or non-con as it's often called. So we've got child porn, we've got revenge porn, we've got terrorist content. Now all three of these things are illegal on their own. There are laws prohibiting those things. And then you've got hate speech and incitement to violence. Now, why are those in two separate categories? You see, if the criminal code definition is to be taken as authoritative in Canadian law, which I would hope it is, incitement is itself a criminal code violation. So if it's illegal to incite offline, it is also illegal to incite online. And the reason that's important here is because when the government starts talking about hate speech in the context of regulating online harms, they are talking about a lower threshold than what exists in law right now. They're talking about the return of Section 13 of the Canadian Human Rights Act. Section 13 of the Canadian Human Rights Act was the bill that, or the provision rather, that was often referred to as the blogger ban. It was a section of law that allowed the Canadian Human Rights Commission to prosecute conservative bloggers. They went after them with abandon. My late dear friend Kathy Shadle had to bear the brunt of this when she ran her very popular and acerbic and witty blog, Five Feet of Fury. We also saw this provision attempt to go after people like Ezra Levant and Mark Stein, although in the end it was the BC Human Rights Tribunal that took up the prosecution of Mark Stein in McLean's magazine, and it was the Alberta Human Rights Tribunal that went after Ezra Levant and the Western Standard. But all of them were attempting to enforce the very same idea, which is that online hate is a problem in need of a government solution. 
Now, the Liberals made this announcement, and the timing is very important here, at a massive conference dealing with anti-Semitism in Ottawa. Now, this is a conference hosted by the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs, CJA. It was scheduled long before we knew what was going to happen about uh, 10 days ago in Israel. It was a conference that was going to exist because anti-Semitism exists. It's the most pervasive form of hate and is continuously. But we saw in the last week and a half exactly why that is the case. We've seen rampant anti-Semitism. We, I saw someone on Twitter point out, and I, in fact, I should have just pulled the tweet to put on the show today, but I didn't. So I'll just read it for you. It's currently more socially acceptable to say death to the Jews than to say men cannot get pregnant. Now, there is a lot to unpack in that tweet, but it is remarkably accurate that uh, now if you say death to the Jews on a university campus, you'll probably be elected student council president. If you say men cannot get pregnant, you will probably be expelled. This is exactly why anti-Semitism is important. It's why hate is something that we need to deal with. I do not excuse or tolerate hate or anti-Semitism. However, the answer to these things is not and never should be censorship. And this is the problem that we have now. The government is doing what it does best. They take advantage of a crisis when there is a lot of emotion, which understandably exists on this issue, and they use it as an opportunity to shoehorn in bad legislation. It's why gun control is always introduced in the wake of a shooting, because they know that it becomes very difficult, if not callous, to stand up for guns when someone has just been shot. In the same way, it's very difficult to make the principled stand for free speech, as I do, when someone has uh, shown, as I have on this program, myriad examples of really hateful, nasty speech that most people would argue is probably worth society getting rid of. And I should say, as I've discussed in the context of these uh, pro-Hamas rallies, I believe that existing laws should be enforced. If someone is using their speech to violate other people's liberties, to call for violence, to support violence, absolutely we should enforce existing laws. But we don't need new laws for this. And that's the problem with this. Now, the Liberals introduced this first in 2021, not long before the election. And they introduced it kind of as a bit of a flex, the last day of Parliament. And then, of course, they suspend Parliament. We have an election. The Liberals promised to bring this back in the first 100 days of their mandate. Now, the reason they have not brought it back, and this is, I think, the most concerning part, is because they've spent the last two years trying to broaden it. It, it was originally just going to be about so-called online hate speech. And in the last two years, they've expanded it to talk about all these other things, to talk about terrorist content and child porn and non-consensual imaging. And as I've discussed on this show time and time again, I, look, I am a victim of child sexual abuse. Maybe I should use uh, the better word. I'm a survivor of child sexual abuse. Uh, thankfully, there are no photos of it, of which I'm aware. I don't know if anyone wants to see uh, photos of me in any compromising position. So I guess I'm, I'm saved by the bell in that way. But I take this very seriously. So when I stand up against this bill and against the idea of regulating so-called online harms, uh, the government is going to have a hard time turning around and saying, oh, you must be okay with child sexual exploitation. I say, no, I am not. But I am not okay with lumping all of these things under one umbrella so that they can use someone's objection to the bill as some weird roundabout way of justifying everything else that they're doing there. And that's the thing. Like, I'm against terror content. Let's hive that off in a separate section. 
I'm against child porn. Let's hive that off into a separate section. Why do we need to put the uncontroversial things in the same bill as something that is highly contentious and subject to debate, which is what hate speech is? And, you know, it's easy for me to take the principled stand on free speech because I've just decided, and I would encourage anyone to, that free speech is my hill to die on. It is the most important freedom, apart from, I'd say, the right to enter into contracts and decide for yourself about, you know, who should have the right to speak at this podium and who should have the right to be in your house and stuff like that. But when it comes to the government's role here, they are censoring. Like we, we can talk about whether Bill C-11 is a censorship bill and whether C-18 has resulted in censorship bill. But this is literally, by design, a bill that will regulate online speech. That is a feature and not a bug of what the liberals want to do. And beyond what Section 13 did the first time around, which was really written in an era in which they were regulating fax machines and photo, like phone calls, uh, this is something that is being written with the internet in mind specifically. This is a bill that is written to regulate online companies. So not only will it be illegal for you to post something online uh, that the government deems hateful, but uh, Facebook and uh, X or Twitter, as it used to be called, and YouTube and Rumble, they will be legally compelled to get rid of that content. So all of a sudden, government has deputized big tech companies to be the enforcers of its definition of hate speech, of its redefinition of hate speech. And I think this is where we get into a very important and very dangerous terrain here, and one that I would hope all of the principled people in the world, left or right, and certainly in Canada, will speak up against. And I'm not optimistic. When the original free speech battles of 2012-2013 were taking place, there were actually a large contingent of principled journalists, principled liberals, including a couple of liberal politicians that stood up and said, yeah, free speech is important. People at CBC, people at the Globe and Mail, even the Toronto Star, all of those principled free speech voices, or I should say most of them, have vanished. Uh, most people are no longer willing or able to take up the mantle of defending unpopular, hateful, cringeworthy, despicable, and vile speech which is important in a climate in which we have free speech. If I were to get on the show and say, I love kittens, if I were to go meow, 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 if I were to do my own rendition of Led Zeppelin's Cashmere and I were to replace like meow, 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 that's my right as an individual. But no one's going to object to that. It's not controversial. Why would you censor saying meow? Why would you censor talking about kittens? If I get up and say, well, a biological man cannot be a woman. Ooh. That's the kind of thing that might actually get censored. That's the type of speech where we need free speech protections. And if you think I'm being extreme, just look at in Britain, where police officers have knocked on people's doors and questioned them for daring to assert biological sex is a fundamental and inalienable reality. This has happened in the UK, a supposedly freedom-loving country. I wouldn't say that term has necessarily applied for the last several years, but nevertheless, it is a liberal democratic nation that has as a core foundation freedom of expression. You look at other examples of this where human rights commissions in Ontario, like uh, the Earth Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario, says that dead naming someone using their biological sex-based name could be an act of hate, could be illegal discrimination. 
It's the human rights industrial complex that is going to be responsible for upholding and enforcing these laws. So these people who believe that you should have a right to uh, demand this based on your identity group or that based on your identity group are going to be the ones adjudicating speech. They're going to be the ones adjudicating what you can and cannot say online. While we do not have the text of the bill just yet, the Liberal government's reminder that it is committed to putting this forward should make us sound the alarms right away. We should never even let this bill get tabled. We should be calling out the government, calling out every member of parliament that free speech is sacrosanct and you do not have the right to redefine terms like hate speech, which are already legislated, already governed. We do not have the right and you do not have the right to redefine those to erode our free speech rights as Canadians. And we can take whatever issues we have with the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and we can point out, as critics of my free speech diatribes often do, oh, but we have freedom of expression in Canada, not free speech. That's an American concept, yada, yada, yada. Yes, but as humans, as humans, we have the right to engage in discourse. As humans, we have the right to speak, and we have the right to debate. And it is not love speech that needs protection. It is speech that some people will accuse of being hateful that needs protection. Because the issue is not that I can stand up here and say I like hate and I want hate to be disseminated. The issue is that I do not want or trust the government to define what is hate speech and what is not. That is what is at stake here. It's not about whether we like hate. It's about whether we trust the government to define what hate is when doing so defines what speech will be legal and illegal. I assure you, I am not letting this issue up, and I hope you do not either. Uh, with that, I want to get to some economic pocketbook issues because we might not find ourselves facing the uh, barrel of the Canadian Human Rights Commission gun, but we are facing the grocery store price tags. And have you noticed things getting better? Uh, Francois Philippe Champagne a couple of weeks back came out and gave this uh, big, long kind of, he had like the mission accomplished banner behind him, basically, of saying, I've summoned all the grocers to Ottawa and they've all committed to lower their prices. They all had a plan out by Thanksgiving. Well, it's now a couple of weeks beyond. And and, you know, I haven't been hearing any ringing success stories from Canadians uh, telling me, wow, you know what, I uh, you know, wasn't originally going to buy a turkey, but now they've uh, been slashed to 60% off and I got the turkey, I got the stuff and I got everything. I uh, haven't heard much of that. And now uh, Francois-Philippe Champagne has been taking aim at the uh, grocery stores and saying, well, I need a firm plan. We need a firm plan. Where's your plan? Now, it was a little odd because a couple of weeks back, he said that he had seen the plans. Take a look. From the perspective of a consumer, you're talking about flyers like they're a new thing. How is what you are saying not deeply offensive to Canadians who cannot afford the prices they're seeing now? And what you're proposing is plans that the grocery stores already do every winter. And that one professor just told me is business as usual. So how would you know what's in the plan? Because I'm the only one to have the plans in Canada. No, no, I'm saying, don't, no, 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 let's, let's go back. Do you want to go to the transcript? I'm saying those are examples of what we see in the plans because I want the market to compete. I cannot say I received that from Loblaws. I received that from Metro. I received that from Costco. I received that from Walmart or Sobase. What I'm saying is that example, no one is suggesting that Flyers is new. No one is suggesting that. But the question was, when are you going to see impact? Well, I say, when I read what I see, 
from what I have in my plans or the plans that I've received, I already see things that's in the plan that are being put in action. So people responding to measures that they intend to do. I feel like I was like, I feel like there was a translation needed for me to understand that, although he's speaking in English. I don't actually know what he said, but the one part I got was him saying there's a plan. He's the only one in Canada that's seen the plan. He has the plan. He sees the plans already in effect. And then yesterday he comes out and he says, oh, these grocery stores need to be more forthright with their plans. Maybe it's because the government has dropped the ball once again. Franco Terrazano joins me, federal director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Uh, Franco, uh, did that look like a man with a plan to you? It's a plan about making a plan sometime in the future. You know, it's like political theater, but it's like embarrassing political theater. I wanted to make an analogy that this kind of looks like, I don't know, your, your, your kid's grade two theater program, but even this is worse than going to maybe your grade school, your, your kid's grade school theater production. It's embarrassing. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I was skeptical at the beginning when, you know, Canadians are looking at the government and saying, you know, you have to deal with inflation here. I can't afford to get by. And the government immediately just finds as its scapegoat Galen Weston and the head of Sobeys and the head of Costco. And uh, that's not to say these people are perfect, but they made this big, huge show of summoning them to Ottawa and uh, demanding them they produce a plan. And then again, he comes out and wants to claim victory. Oh, yes, they've given the plan. It's great. We won. And then Canadian like that, you can only keep up that scam for a few days before Canadians are like, well, the prices haven't really changed. Yeah, every time you go to the grocery store, you know that the government has failed to bring down prices, right? Prices are going up. Everything feels like it's getting more expensive. And, you know, this is actually worse than political theater because this could have real consequences for Canadians. Uh, we think things are bad now, but wait until Trudeau brings forth his so-called solution. Remember, when he first started this theatrical play, he threatened, quote, tax measures. What do you think that means, Andrew? It means that Trudeau is musing about a grocery tax. Now, look, I'm not losing a second of sleep over these grocery store owners. In fact, it is okay to go after grocery store owners. What I would do is how about we stop giving them buckets of taxpayer cash, like the time the government gave Loblaws 12 million bucks to buy some fridges. But the problem is that if the government were to bring in a grocery tax, guess who would end up paying it? All of us ordinary Canadians every time we go to the till because that tax would be passed on to the price of food. Yeah, and that, I mean, that was the one thing. I mean, he says a lot of things that I have trouble reconciling or understanding, like when Justin Trudeau tried to explain what a water bottle was or something like that. <laughs> but but when he tried to, you know, threaten a grocery store tax, I'm like, how on earth? It, like, like, no one has ever saved money with a tax. Like, let's just go back to first principles here. A tax, by definition, is a tax. So the idea that, like, a tax measure was going to lower the price of anything, I've never, like, I was really interested in saying let's just dispense with partisanship like literally explain to me your logic in saying that yeah i mean another tax isn't going to make the box of cereal more affordable it's going to make everything more expensive and you know what's the craziest part of all of this less than a year ago cbc news asked trudeau about a grocery tax and mr trudeau rightly responded that a grocery tax would just be passed on to the consumer that was less than a year ago. So what has changed? Well, the economic realities that Trudeau first described haven't changed. If the government hammers these stores with a new tax, that new tax would be passed on to the consumer in the form of higher prices. 
So what has changed is the political realities. It's the political science, right? Trudeau is grasping for a scapegoat to take the pressure off his own failed policies that is making your life more expensive. And he's looking for the scapegoat, right? And the scapegoat, of course, is the grocery stores. But the real problem that the government could fix today with a snap of the finger is the taxes that are already in place that are making food more expensive. Case in point, the government's own carbon tax, Andrew. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like anytime, I think you and I have actually had this discussion in the past on the show. Like there are a lot of things that the government cannot control. There are a lot of things with inflation that uh, are happening globally. There are global economic trends. Now that's not to say that governments can't do better things and, and weather it better. But the government has some levers that it has not even tried to pull. And one of those is the carbon tax. And, and people like the conservatives in the past have, have rightly said this is a tax on everything because there's yep. the direct tax that you pay when you uh, pay your home heating, you fuel up your car, and then there's the indirect tax that uh, you have to pay because when you get that papaya, that papaya that had to be flown or shipped and then driven and the grocery store that needs to power its uh, operations, and, and you pay that carbon tax, a little fraction of that carbon tax at every step of the life cycle and supply chain of a product. You know what is so crazy? Less than 24 hours after Trudeau held that press conference, threatening tax measures on the grocery store owners, less than 24 hours, the parliamentary budget officer, thank goodness for their work, came out with a report that shows exactly how the government could reduce prices, scrapping the carbon tax, okay? The PBO's report shows that the carbon tax in Canada is costing Canadian farmers a billion dollars through 2030. Okay, by making it more expensive for them to use the dry to the natural gas and propane they use to dry grain or heat their barns. Well, guess what? When you make it more expensive for farmers to produce food, you make it more expensive for Canadians to buy food. Right. Very simple. Not rocket science. The carbon tax, as you rightly also described, is hammering the truck drivers every time they fuel their big rigs with diesel. And when you make it more expensive for truckers to deliver the food you make it more expensive for Canadians to buy the food. Now, what is so frustrating is that the carbon tax is making life more expensive in Canada and is doing absolutely nothing, zero zilch, for the environment, right? Because making it more expensive for Canadians to fuel up our cars or to fill up our grocery carts does absolutely nothing to reduce emissions in places like China or Russia or India or the United States. I'm told by Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland we're being a little bit too gloomy here. Let's get her to weigh in. Calgary Forest Lawn. Finance Minister is known for speeding up just for the wrong reasons. By adding more debt than every government before them combined, she, she put the pedal to the metal on her deficits and revved up inflation. And unlike an Alberta highway, the consequences of her spending isn't just a speeding ticket. It's a bigger deficit, higher inflation that led to higher interest rates, putting Canada most at risk in the G7 for a mortgage default crisis. After eight years, they're definitely not worth the cost. Is the Finance Minister going to blow through her budget deficit projections again, buy more more than six billion dollars, yes or no? The Honourable Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Finance. Mr. Speaker, our government will provide an update on our fiscal position, on expenses and on revenues in the fall economic update in due course this fall. 
But I do want to be very, very clear on Canada's fiscal position. I was at the IMF World Bank Finance Minister's meeting just last week, and that is where it was so clear that Canada has the best, the lowest deficit, the lowest debt-to-GDP ratio in the G7. Our position is enviable, Mr. Speaker. Well, what do you think, Franco? Are we in an enviable position financially? <laughs> I think anyone who has been to a grocery store, a gas station, or just left their house in the last, what, couple weeks knows that we are not. I mean, come on. The parliamentary budget officer, again, just produced another report. Okay, it's fiscal update, seeing where the government's finances are. And as bad as the budget was from Freeland, everything's even worse. Uh, it's been six months since Freeland tabled her last budget, and her deficit is already 16% higher. Interest charges, those are up. Folks, we're paying almost $4 billion every single month just to cover the interest charges on the, on the government credit card. Almost $4 billion a month, not going to hospitals, not going to roads, not hiring more teachers, uh, not lowering taxes, going to the bond fund managers on Bay Street. Does that sound good to you? $4 billion a month wasted on interest charges. Oh, how about this? Their fiscal anchor, right? Debt to GDP ratio going down. Freeland broke her fiscal anchor. Ah, debt to GDP ratio going up. We're now, what, $1.2 trillion in debt by the end of this year, which is almost $30,000 for each and every Canadian. We've seen the carbon tax go up. We've seen a second carbon tax come in. We've seen alcohol taxes go up. We've seen payroll taxes go up. Now the government says it's gonna hit us with a digital services tax. Uh, folks, does this sound like good news to you? No, of course not. The only person yeah. who could think that we're in a good situation is a person on a minister's salary who has taken not one, not two, not three, but four pay raises over the last couple of years. Yeah, and uh, very well said on all counts there. And I think that, you know, the, the envy, like, it, it's really interesting because everyone made fun of Christopher Freeland for that old Disney Plus comment she made a little while back. But I think that was like, that was a picnic compared to the tone deafness of saying how enviable Canada's fiscal situation is. Franco Terrazano, Federal Director for the CTF. Always a pleasure, sir. Thanks so much, Andrew. All right. Actually, I was in Ottawa last week and ran into Franco. It's always always good to see him in person. And then I I had to like I had to rebuff him because I was I had such a busy day. And he's like, oh, we should get together. And then I said, I'm sorry, I'm back to back and then flying back home. So uh, next time I will uh, put him on my dance card earlier. I don't even when did I get a dance card? I'm a nobody. But anyway, uh, one thing I wanted to shift to before we uh, move on with this Polyev clip that I, I want to talk about a little later on in the show is Alberta politics, which I feel I've been neglecting in the, in the last couple of weeks. But uh, the UCP has its convention coming up, its annual general meeting. It's first since Danielle Smith became the party's leader. And one of the resolutions that's coming up is going to be very familiar because it's similar to what was debated and passed with a resounding margin at the Conservative Party of Canada's convention in Quebec City. And True North has a story up about this you could read, which came out yesterday. But uh, basically, the UCP membership will be debating on whether to take a very similar approach to gender in schools, as is, in the, as is the case in Saskatchewan, in New Brunswick, as uh, the Ontario government is kind of spoken about but hasn't really done yet and that is to basically adopt a policy saying you need parental consent if you are under 16 and want to change your gender in schools now uh, this is something that uh, conservative members in 
Quebec City voted for in a huge, huge margin. It's been a hugely popular policy in New Brunswick. It's been popular nationally when it's been polled. But Alberta, despite being the conservative heartland, has been very hesitant to weigh in on this. Danielle Smith uh, has been non-committal. She says, well, you know, we'll, we'll look into it uh, and whatnot. This is what she said when asked about it last week. So Premier Mo next door in Saskatchewan has said he's going to use the notwithstanding clause to essentially support provincial legislation that says similar things to this uh, separate school board policy. I'm just curious for the Premier, um, what do you think about Premier Mo's decision to do that and would you support similar legislation provincially if it was supported by the grassroots of your party? As I said, we haven't made a decision as a caucus. We're still watching to see what policies are in place um, in other parts of the country. I, I do think, though, that um, we, we have to understand that the children can't be in a position where they're forced to have two identities, one at home and one at school. And so I think it's upon uh, incumbent upon all of us to find an, an avenue where we can support a child as they're making these decisions. Because I, I think if we're concerned about the mental health and wellness of a child, making sure that they're not being torn in two directions has got to be the direction that, that we support as a government. Um, I, I'll wait and see how the legal process plays out in Saskatchewan, but at the moment we haven't made any decisions to legislate here. Basically, what she's saying there is we're not going into it. She was asked as well, I, I think around the time of the Million Person March, and gave a very similarly tepid answer on that issue. And I should just say for context here, Danielle Smith has never pretended to be a social conservative, although in the last few years when governments were shutting down churches and arresting pastors, the libertarian position was very much in alignment with the social conservative position on a lot of issues. But on this, it is an issue that I think is putting her at odds with a lot of the conservatives in her party, and I'd say around the country, and not even just conservatives, a lot of parents. want to welcome into this discussion William McBeth. He is is the COO of True North, but before that, he has been a longtime Alberta politico and actually worked on uh, Danielle Smith's uh, campaign uh, when she was running as the Wild Rose leader back uh, over a decade ago. Uh, William, it's good to talk to you about this. Just set the stage here. I mean, Danielle Smith's relationship with social conservatives and social conservatism has been a very interesting one in, in political history. Yeah, no, I think uh, I think you're right, and I would say um, there there might even be a little bit of a misconception about Alberta when it comes to social conservatism. As a whole, Alberta is pretty happy to live and let live on most issues. Um, the polling I've seen, and it is from about ten years ago, showed strong majorities in favor of things like same-sex marriage, uh, you know, equality and rights for. Uh, LGBTQ people, so there isn't really a lot of uh, a lot of disagreement on that. I think where it comes up against a hard line, though, is on issues related to children, the role of teachers, and the role of parents in being those who make decisions in the best interests of their kids. And I think that's where we're now seeing a lot of division and debate, and where they're going to find a lot of agreement with Danielle Smith, who I think ideologically believes that the real childcare experts aren't the education bureaucrats or even the teachers in schools. The real childcare experts are called mom and dad, and that's who should have the decisions and be in charge of those decisions for their own kids.
Yeah, I, I think that's an important point, and and I should I, I wouldn't say walk back, but I I should add some additional context to my approach to this issue, which is that uh, the parental rights discussion is one that is far broader than the category we generally refer to as social conservatives, and I think we're seeing that in in polling around the country. Like this is an issue that's galvanizing people that aren't just conventionally conservative, let alone SoCon. So. With that in mind, why do you think the UCP government ha has been so hesitant on, on this when, I mean, even Blaine Higgs in New Brunswick, who's hardly a firebrand, has really made this his hill to die on? Uh, and you're absolutely right. I mean, part of it could be uh, a little bit of shell shock from times they've wandered into the issue, perhaps unprepared, perhaps without thinking through all of the all of the fallout or the communications necessary around it. I mean, I can recall specifically when uh, the issue of gay straight alliances in schools came up and the fact that while Rose at the time under Daniel Smith didn't fully support those, that that caused a lot of consternation, was widely seen as one of the reasons why while Rose wasn't able to get over the top and uh, win an election. What we're really talking about is you know, putting a party or a government really offside with enough voters that it hurts their ability to win an election. I think there's a perception that uh, in city, big cities like Calgary, there could be problems if you took too hard a line. That being said, I think we're being pushed towards a having to make a choice. I think we're reaching a point rapidly where uh, there are those who believe that parents are generally an, a negative influence on their own children's lives, that parents are not to be trusted, that teachers know, know far better than parents how to raise kids. And the people who believe that believe it full-throatedly. But I think it's not what Alberta parents believe. It's not what the vast majority of Albertans believe. It's not what the vast majority of people who live in, in Calgary or in Edmonton believe. And I think uh, you will see Move on, movement on the part of Danielle and her government on this because she won't have a choice. She will have to say where the government stands. So as I mentioned, in a couple of weeks, the UCP members will have the right to weigh in on, on this, uh, along with other issues. We saw the numbers federally with the Conservative Party of Canada. And well, I think there needs to be that caveat that party policy is not binding on a, a leader or a government. It does provide a pretty useful barometer of where the grassroots stands. And I think it also kind of throws the ball into Danielle Smith's court. If uh, there is some resounding majority for this and they're looking to the government, which has a majority right now, how responsive do you think the party will be to its members on, on this or in general? Yeah, I mean, I think the last couple of years in Alberta politics, which have not been dull, are instructive when it comes to this issue because, uh, you know, if you look at Premier Kenny, Premier Kenny wasn't thrown out by the voters of Alberta. He was thrown out by his own party members. And Danielle remembers well that when party leaders lose the support of their own party or their own caucus, it's almost untenable for them to stay on. I mean, I'm old enough to remember back when Alberta was governed or misgoverned by Premier Alison Redford, who never lost an election, but she did lose the support of her own caucus and her own party. So she'll be very cautious about adopting policy positions that run contrary to where her own party members, where her own caucus stand on this. And, and I would say she's often stated publicly that her position on issues is informed by where her party's membership is. She is a Democrat. She believes that if her party, which, and they're going to have something like 3,000 members attending their, their next AGM, if her party stakes out a bold claim or a solid claim on one of these issues, I don't think she'll feel she has any form of mandate to really ignore 
what the party is telling her. And she would do so at her own peril. Well, and I, well, I know Danielle Smith quite well, as, as you certainly do. I, I don't pretend to be inside her head or to have had any conversations with this. So I'm, I'm purely speculating. And, you know, there is a part of me that wonders if, if that's part of a play here, though, which is to say that, well, if I hold back now and wait for caucus or the membership to decide, now I've got a bit of cover to go in on this. Where I don't look like an ideologue, I'm saying, well, the members have spoken and, and that's the, the basis for it. Again, I don't know if that's the, the chess game at play here, but if she is that Democrat, as you've articulated, that may be the plan rather than just deciding out of the blue or seemingly out of the blue, we should do this because Saskatchewan did. Absolutely. And I think I think you're right, particularly on this issue. Uh, I think she would prefer to approach it from a position of she has some sort of mandate. She has some sort of guidance from her members, her caucus, her party. Overwhelmingly, though, I can say that the, the public research, the vote, the polling I've seen from Albertans makes it clear that they think that parents should be making decisions about their own children, not so-called education professionals, teachers, education bureaucrats, or, or school boards. And um, you, you only have to look at how crazy some of these school board people are for why Albertans are coming to that conclusion. The school boards elected uh, across the province, particularly in the two major cities, are, are woke factories churning out outrage and insanity at an unprecedented level. I mean, Alberta always likes to think we have the, we've cornered the market on conservatism. But if you look at our two local governments in Edmonton and Calgary, those are a hotbed of crazy right there. We've got Amarjeet Sohi in Edmonton, Jody Gondek in Calgary, school boards and city councils that are incredibly left-wing right at home in Toronto and Vancouver. So for uh, her not to take a position on this, I think is going to be problematic when so many parents have already decided. And um, if I can just say, I think ideologically, the idea that parents are overwhelmingly bad for their own kids doesn't fly with, I mean, not mm -hmm. just Albertans, I think that doesn't fly anywhere in our country. The vast majority, the crushingly overwhelming majority of parents love their own children and wants what's best for them. So for the left to suggest otherwise, I think puts them offside with a massive amount of voters. Yeah, very well said. William Macbeth is the COO of True North. And for the last 15 minutes, our staff have been running up expenses because you weren't here to approve them and deny them. So I'll let you get back and rein in that. Uh, William, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. All right. One thing I wanted to get, I wasn't going to bring this up. I saw this on the weekend. Pierre Polyev on the break week in the House of Commons was out in BC and he was uh, campaigning in an apple orchard, which is like a very retail politics thing to do. And there were a bunch of photos of him uh, chatting with people and videos of him meeting with people. And there was this one video that I saw that he posted. And the caption, I think, was, how do you like them apples? So take from that what you will. But it was this long exchange that I thought at first was with a constituent or with a voter. And, and it was really kind of uncomfortable because the voter was like talking about things and you could tell they didn't really understand them. And Polyev was being very Polyev-like in pushing back and saying, well, who says that and who says that? Uh, this is a snippet. It was a long video, but this is, a, a I think, a two-minute snippet of it. Um, on the on the topic, I mean, in terms of your sort of strategy currently, you're obviously taking the populist uh, pathway. Um, what does that mean? <laughs> well, ap appealing appealing to people's uh, more emotional levels, I would guess. Um, 
I mean, what certainly, you mean certainly, you, certainly, you tap, certainly you tap uh, very strong ideological language quite frequently. Like what? Uh, left wing, you know, this and that, right wing, they, you know, I mean, it's that, that type I of ideological thing. I never really talk about left but or right. Anyways, a lot I of people. I don't really believe in that. Okay. A lot of people would, would say that you're simply taking a page out of the Donald Trump uh, book. Probably like which people would say that? Well, I'm sure a great many Canadians, but. Like who? <laughs> I don't know who, but. Well, you're um, the one who asked the question, so yeah. how, you must know somebody. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm sure there's some out there, but anyways, the, the point of this the point of this question is, I mean, why should why should Canadians trust you with their vote, given, you know, not not just the sort of ideological inclination in terms of taking the page of Donald Trump's book, but what are you also, talking about? What page? What page? Can you give okay. me a page? Give me the page. You keep <laughs> in, saying in that. terms of, in terms of turn, turning things quite dramatically in terms of of Trudeau and and the left wing and all of this. I mean, you 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 make quite a you know it's it's quite a play that you make on it. So I'm I'm not just sure. I don't, under, I don't I don't know what your question okay. is. Okay, then forget that. Why should Canadians trust you with their vote? Common sense. Okay. Common sense for for a change. We're going to make common sense common in this country. We don't have any common sense in the current government. You know, the guy prints six hundred billion dollars, grows our money supply by thirty-two percent in three years. That's growing the money eight times faster than the economy. No. I don't know if you could hear me when it was on. I forgot. I don't know if I muted. I was like laughing hysterically. I should have brought a prop apple to. I don't know why I held up nothing to refer to my prop apple that doesn't exist. I should have brought an apple just like because that was, I think, the best part of the clip. It's just like Polly F just crunching the apple and just staring at this guy smugly. Anyway, anytime. The first time I saw that clip. I was thinking it was like just really awkward. This voter that was just outmatched, like not making eye contact, not prepared. And then I learned he is not just some random voter from Kelowna, but he's actually a reporter and editor with Castanet, uh, which is a an outlet in British Columbia. And it's a smaller local outfit, but, but established anyway, uh, by the name of Don Urquhart. So his, that was an interview. Like, and, and, you know, when it's, he's asking about Trump and populism and this, and Polyev's the one that publishes the video. Like, you know, they're proud of how they come across in that. And I still like, I still kind of cringy because it, it's like this guy brought a dull apple to a gunfight. Uh, that's basically the metaphor if I decide to mix them up for you here. But he's like, well, uh, populism, Trump, left wing, right wing, populism, Trump. And then when he gets called on it, it's, well, let's just move on from that. So why are you running? It's like, well, oh my goodness. So uh, this is, it's funny. I've had some debates with reporters about this. One uh, mainstream media reporter in the parliamentary press gallery who told me that uh, this keeps every reporter on their toes. They don't want to show up unprepared. And I've had others that think this guy is, you know, undermining the fifth estate or the fourth estate or the ninth estate or Babylon five or whatever it is. But uh, basically I think what's happening here is Polyev is flipping the script. And if you're going to go in there with people say, uh, you better be able to cite one single person who may have said something to that effect. There's my lesson to any reporter that is going to interview Pierre Polyev. But what was interesting is that clip I saw recirculating today because American conservative media had picked it up. Town Hall was going after it. I saw Ron DeSantis's press secretary sharing it. I saw a bunch of American conservatives that were DMing me being like, do you know this, you know, Pierre 
guy, this, you know, French guy, whatever. I said, well, boy, do I have a, a story for you about Canadian politics. And then they unfollowed me. But anyway, uh, that is uh, basically what happened here. So it's starting to get noticed, uh, perhaps by people that like how Trump and DeSantis have tried to flip the script as well. But nevertheless, that does it for us for today. We'll be back with more of the Andrew Lawton Show in 23 hours and 15 minutes here on True North. Thank you. God bless and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to the Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.